Glad you're here this morning. Really, I'm glad you're here. Let me pray. <clears throat> Lord, in these next few minutes, we pray that you will speak loud and clear. Lord, we pray that you will speak. I ask specifically you will speak in spite of me. I pray that your word will come alive and that it will hit people's hearts and lives and that it will change them as a result. Lord, I include myself in that prayer. I pray that this, um, this message works through all of us in the coming hours and weeks and days. Lord, I pray that the result of this message uh, will, that it's not, will be that it's not routine and mundane, but that it will be truly life-changing. Lord, we turn this time over to you. And I also, Lord, uh, we want to pray for Fairview Baptist Church this morning. Just pray that their time in the Word this morning is rich. I pray for the, the man preaching right now that I pray that uh, he has engaged you and that he's been undone by you this week. I pray that the word has been exposed to him and it's hit his life and run him through and undone him so that when he speaks, he speaks from his heart. He speaks from what has changed him. And Lord, I pray the result of that will be that that little bride over there at Fairview will be uh, just a living, engaging uh, body of believers that will bring glory to you. I pray that we can partner with Fairview in some way, Lord, whether it be uh, tangible or not. We pray that there's a spirit of partnership. And Lord, guard us from ever being competitive with the other churches in our community. Lord, just creating us a heart of uh, teamwork and a heart of a shared commission and a shared Lord and a shared cross and a shared empty tomb. Lord, I pray that the things that bind us will be the things that we maximize and, and focus on and the things that bind us together in ministry. We turn this time over to you, Lord, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I asked a few questions last week to begin the message, and uh, they're appropriate again this morning. Are you not getting what you deserve? You feel like there's certain things or certain um, events or certain characteristics of life that you see in others that you feel like you deserve? Do you feel like others are out to get you? Do you feel unrecognized and underappreciated? I also encouraged people last week, and I'll make the same encouragement this week, if you're elbowing someone or thinking about someone else, to just stop. Don't do that and realize this message is for you too, and it may be especially for you if you're elbowing someone else. Again, we're going to begin in John chapter 11, verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it, and Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, Come forth. The man who died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him, let him go. We've been bathing in the imagery of this story. This week and next week will be, next week will be our last 
message in the He Stinketh series of, passage, of, of messages. This message this morning will continue to focus on the stench and the condition of Lazarus. He was four days dead for the Israelite. They felt like four days of deadness was full-on deadness. If you were a few days shy of that or even a day shy of that, maybe you could be revived or maybe you were comatose and you might come back to life and they thought you were dead. But if you're four days dead, let's wrap you up, stick you in a tomb because you're full-on dead. And Lazarus was there, four days dead, locked and sealed in a tomb, stinking, decomposing, decaying, and unable to do anything about it. In all of that, he demonstrates what our condition is apart from and before Christ. Stinking, decomposing, dead, and unable to do anything about it. The imagery of this passage has been a great tutor for us. It's led us to these weird places where this weird counterintuitive thing that in considering our stench and our wretchedness and our vileness and our odiousness that we've discovered treasures as a result of that. This weird counterintuitive otherworldly thing that's led us to these treasures that are transforming and changing our lives. What we've realized in these last few weeks is that we can't appreciate the riches that we have in Christ until we seriously consider our poverty without him. What we've realized these last few weeks is if you don't realize what you've been saved from, then you can't truly worship and appreciate your Savior. Last week, we met a man named Saul. I want you all to turn to the book of 1 Samuel. What an awesome story. This guy named Saul, the first king of Israel. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Last week, we just bathed in this whole book of 1 Samuel from nearly start to finish. But I want to focus on three verses this morning just for a moment because it leads us into our message this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 10, the nation of Israel is crying out for a king and both Samuel and God are not real happy about that. But God tells Samuel, let's go ahead and give them what they want. He says, in fact, I've got somebody in mind. His name is Saul. So God leads Samuel to Saul. And then here we are in chapter 10. We meet Saul, or the nation of Israel meets Saul publicly for the first time. In chapter 10, starting in verse 21, Samuel is bringing out the nation of Israel tribe by tribe to identify. He already knows who it is, but so the nation of Israel can see who this new king of Israel or this first king of Israel would be. He brought the tribe of Benjamin nearby its families. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. Therefore, they inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he's hiding himself in the baggage. So they ran and took him. Almost sounds like they had to grab him by force. They took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the other people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there's no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. This is Saul small in his own eyes, Saul. This is the big lug that I like, the kind of guy that I enjoy, that actually is hiding from recognition among the baggage. Also, later in the next chapter, we find that There were some of those that conspired against him or were resistant to him. And the way he addressed that, the way he handled resistance, if you read the next chapter in chapter 11, you find that he handled resistance with grace. 
with charity. That's small in his own eyes, Saul. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Here's where we meet. We've already met, really, if you've read the, the book of 1 Samuel, which I encourage you to do this week, you've already met him. But here's where we see how Samuel characterized Saul in verse 17. Saul has already made some bad decisions. He's already proven himself disobedient. And Samuel says to him, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? You used to be small in your own eyes, Saul. But now things have changed. Here's, turn to chapter 22. Here's the most vivid image of what happened to this big lug who was small in his own eyes here in chapter 22. The most vivid, poignant picture of a guy that was now consumed with himself. In chapter 22, starting in verse 6, midway through, now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height. I guess there's just one tree there, the tamarisk tree. He's got his spear in his hand. You won't see Saul again in the last half of the book of 1 Samuel without his spear in hand. It's awesome imagery. Sitting underneath the tamarisk tree with a spear in his hand, and all of his servants are standing around him. All his servants. I mean, his team. His team is standing around him, guarding him. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites, O brothers who come from my original tribe, Will the son of Jesse, that being David, also give to all of you, your fe- give you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all of you have conspired against me. You're going to hear that word a lot here in a minute. All of you have conspired against me, my fellow Benjamites, my servants, so that there's no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there's none of you who's sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. This guy, Saul, went from hiding among the baggage, reluctantly recognized, facing resistance with forgiveness and even grace, small in his own eyes, to being disobedient, placing his plans and what he thinks over what God thinks, he turned into having a real bad case of meitis, where everything's about him. And he also turned very suspicious, distrusting of everyone, and very aggressive defending himself. You don't see him without his spear. Rather than facing resistance with grace, like he did when he was small in his own eyes, now he wants to poke them with his spear and pin people to the wall. I hope that this last week, if you've read this story, that you've gone where I went is a, from a place where you're saying, man, this guy is pitiful. What a joke to going, oh, wait a second. Now it's getting a little bit personal, Lord. Don't, don't imply that I look like Saul, God. Don't, don't reveal to me that maybe I have more in common with Saul than with anyone else. That's what he did to me. As I began to think that we tend to grow bigger in our eyes over time, just like Saul. David, who started out small in his own eyes, did the same thing too. 
We tend to grow bigger in our own eyes. The more experienced I become in preaching and pastoring, I am prone to be less teachable. The more seasoning I have, the more confident I am in my ability. And then when someone confronts me or when the Lord confronts me, I'm like, hey, I've been preaching for three years. Like Saul, I've been king for 20 years. How dare you? I've been a parent for eight years. How dare you? I've been an engineer. I'm a doctor. I'm a builder. I've been a secretary for 15 years. How dare you confront me? I've killed 10,000. I'm 18 years old, mom and dad. How dare you? I've arrived. I've figured it out. I hope you see yourself in Saul. Me, I carry my spear more readily, ready to poke someone over time. And I work a lot harder to protect my reputation over time. But here's the beauty. We have something that Saul didn't have. We have Lazarus. Thank you, Lazarus. Saul could have used John chapter 11. Of course, he didn't need John chapter 11 because he had the law. Because the law does the same thing that Lazarus does for us, that the same thing that John chapter 11 does for us. When you get up next to the law, you can't help but be bankrupt and hopeless and helpless. See, law, or Saul didn't spend enough time against the law. The law is a tutor that leads us to Christ via bankruptcy. And the problem is Saul didn't visit there. But we have not only the law, we have Saul's story, and we have John chapter 11. And thankfully, we have good old, stinking, smelling, decomposing Lazarus. Three things that I'm going to introduce to you this morning. Three more characteristics of the formerly smelly under the heading of growing smaller in our own eyes. The formerly smelly are small in their own eyes. These are subheadings of those. Here's the first one. The formerly smelly, those who've been called forth from the tomb and are now in relationship with Christ, walking and engaging Him, captivated with Him, growing in the faith. The formerly smelly come as little children and they're growing downward. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That seemed to be their focus. Pitiful bunch. They're not anything like us. And he called a child to himself and set him before him. A little child. I said, come here, kid. Sit right here, buddy. I'm going to use you as an illustration. Hold on, sit still. And he said, Truly, I say to you, disciples... Unless you are converted and become like little children. You see him almost patting this guy, the little kid's head. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this little dude right here, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
When I considered that and I considered this smallness of a child and the humility of a child, first I just considered some of the general characteristics of children. We have three of them, and I was one, so I have lots of references for me to study this. And here's some things I came up with. Children are brutally honest, right? Little Jake Rodden, I know, I know uh, Don said, oh, no, don't tell a story. I'm, I'm going to. I, I got the floor, so you're doomed. I have to tell it. Jake Rodden one day, this is when Crocs first came out. If you know what Crocs are, they're these real ugly rubber-looking shoes that I have a pair now, and they're really comfortable. But before I had a pair, the first time I saw a pair, I was like, man, that's the ugliest thing. And they were on Jake Rodden's feet, and they were red. And I said, Jake, what do you have on your feet? Man, that's the ugliest thing I ever saw in my life. You probably won't ever send your kids over to my house, knowing that that's where. Well, he said, well, yeah, but you're fat. (laughs) I was speechless. (laughs) They are brutally honest. Children are transparent and authentic. All my stories aren't as good as that one. That one's just really funny. I couldn't pass it up. So They are transparent and authentic. They're just not good fakers. If they're not happy or if they're hiding something, you know it. It's just so obvious. They're so transparent and so authentic. They're constantly awestruck. Little Daniel loves planes and trains. And if we're in a car, we're walking around and a plane flies over, he shouts it at the top of his lungs, a plane! They're constantly awestruck. And they're very extreme. That's a a double emphasis there. Very extreme. They're all there. They run everywhere they go. They are all there. But in the area of humility, I want to consider children in the area of humility. Children are dependent. One of the things that I enjoyed about Luke, it's a great memory that we laugh about sometimes, is whenever Luke, he's our middle one, whenever he was a little bitty, he'd come downstairs for breakfast. And uh, if we didn't roust him out, he'd come out down on his own. And it's breakfast time, and the first word's out of his mouth. He didn't know many words, but he knew this. Give me some breakfast. (laughs) Gravelly voice. He had about ten-word vocabulary, and that was five of them right here. Give me some breakfast. But he was dependent. He couldn't get his own breakfast, but he knew who to go to to get it from. Children are also needy. How many of you moms hear the word all day long, mommy, 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 mommy. I need this right now. Get off the phone. I don't care who you're talking to. I need this now. I'm needy, mommy. Remember, I'm a kid. And I'm dependent. And they're pesty pestering little guys. Daniel, Saturday morning. Man, this was, this was funny. Uh, Friday night, the Roddens brought over some cupcakes. So uh, Daniel had a cupcake. He eats the top off of it and just leaves like this hole sitting at the bottom. But he, he just I was wearing most of it. He just really enjoyed this, this, this cupcake. First thing in the morning on Saturday, it's breakfast time. Christy's making some pancakes, chocolate chip pancakes, no less. I mean, that's good stuff, the lap of luxury, you know. And Daniel sits down to his chocolate pancakes, and he said, I want a cupcake. (laughs) And we said, no, no, you can't have a cupcake till later on the day. You don't have cupcakes for breakfast. Donuts, those are okay, but not a cupcake. (laughs) Not a cupcake, man. No way. And Daniel actually said, he said, no, I'm serious. I'm in control. 
I want a cupcake. <laughs> Daniel's three. Well, anyway, he finished his breakfast, finished his little chocolate chip pancakes, and he says, um, he says, have we had lunch yet? I mean, he's ready for his cupcake. Little kids are pests. They will pester you to death. And they constantly need to be affirmed. How many times have you seen a kid on a bike or climbing a tree or on a pile of dirt and they're looking at mom and dad say, great job. Please say it, mommy and daddy. I want to know that you approve of me. Those are characteristics of children that we want to have characterized in our lives, in our relationship, in our spiritual relationship toward the Lord. Children are not viable. They're not independent. They are not respectable. Children are not autonomous, and they're not confident. They're just children. Jonathan Edwards said this, wrote this. He may have said it too. I know he wrote it. The Christians that are really the most eminent saints and therefore have been the most excellent and have the most excellent experiences and are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven humble themselves as a little child because they look on themselves as but little children in grace and their attainments to be the attainments of babes in Christ and are astonished at and ashamed of the low degrees of their love and their thankfulness and their knowledge of God. See, children are great models for us in our relationship with the Lord as we are like children, coming to the Lord like a child, needy, dependent, Pestering God. Yes, even pestering God because seeing that He's the source of everything and coming to Him even for affirmation with an answerable heart. Lord, approve of me. Oh, I realize I can't be approved of unless I've got the blood of Christ all over me. Now I've got it. Approve of me. Thank you, Jesus. That's how we come to Him as we're growing downward in dependence, in neediness, in pestiness, and answerability. The formerly smelly come as little children and they're growing downward. Secondly, the formerly smelly come unfinished and beating their chests. That's an interesting one. Where did you get that from? Luke 18. Turn to Luke 18. The formerly smelly come unfinished and beating their chests. Luke chapter 18. And Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. I'm going to read that again. Because I hope we can climb in there. Most of us. All of us, maybe. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. I sound like you. Man, me and God, we're square. We got it going on. I'm righteous, right? Come on now. And viewed others with contempt. Maybe that's a byproduct of that mindset. You may say, I don't view others with contempt. Wait a second. I'm nice to others. But what you're about to see is contempt is a man that's standing before God and he's looking at his neighbor and saying, at least I'm not as bad as that guy right there. That's viewing others with contempt. You ever thought that? At least I'm not that wicked. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee 
stood. Look at his posture. He doesn't need to get down on his face before the Lord. He, he stands. He's respectable. He stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that, all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax-collecting sinner, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee and a tax collector. Pharisee acknowledged that his righteousness came from God. I want you to consider that. The Pharisee said, hey, me and God, we're square. And he even went so far as to say that, that righteousness comes from you, God. Well, I appreciate that. Does that sound familiar? I hope it sounds familiar to you. Even if you're, you're uh, humble enough to acknowledge that those good things that you have come from God, but if you think you're square with God, if you think you're righteous, you're more like this Pharisee than the tax collector. The problem about this Pharisee is that he considered himself as a finished product. He considered himself square but it was the sinner who counted himself wretched who went away forgiven turn to philippians philippians chapter 3 you hear these words from a pharisee just imagine the parable that we just heard, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And imagine that the Pharisee, something happens to that Pharisee where God opens his eyes about something. And hear this testimony that you're about to hear from Paul, who was also a Pharisee, in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul, a Pharisee, says, Finally, my brethren... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we're the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He's about to introduce a catalog of virtue. Listen to this. This guy had it going on. This guy was upstanding. Man, if anybody had reason to say, hey, God, we're square, it'd be this guy. Listen to what he says. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them to be rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. I'm not done. I'm going to keep going. But I want you to pay attention to the maze. The word May, you're about to hear about four or five times in the next few verses from a guy that shouldn't have had to say may. You should, this guy should have never even used that word. In the original Greek, it's called a subjunctive mood. It's, as, it's different from the um, indicative mood. The indicative mood is a sign of sureness and certainty. 
This is a done deal. It would be as if uh, that I will gain Christ. But here's a subjunctive mood that says, oh, it hadn't happened yet. I'm hopeful, though. Listen to this. He says that I may gain Christ and that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And then those first three words in verse 11, I don't know what it is in ESV, but in the New American Standard, it's in order that. The words in the original language are actually if, perhaps. I like those better. Because those agree with may, a subjunctive. Like, I'm hopeful about this, but it's not a done deal. If, perhaps, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it. Not that I've already arrived. Not that I'm already finished product or have already become perfect. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul models the heart of the subjunctive Christian right there. May. It hasn't happened yet. It's not a done deal. I have not arrived. He models the heart of the proper, unfinished Christian. Paul, of all people, says may. He says he hasn't obtained it. He presses on that he may lay hold of it. He may lay hold of that which has already laid hold of him. Isn't that beautiful? He works as if it's up to him knowing that it's a done deal already. But he presses on to lay hold of that which has already laid hold of him. Here's where the Pharisee in Jesus' parable turns over to the tax collector who's beating his breast and he says, Oh, I'm you. I'm you, tax collector. Let me beat my chest with you. Paul is laying hold of his nothingness. Paul lays hold of his growing downward, being humbled and getting smaller. What Paul is talking about and writing about there is pursuing holiness. You pursue holiness, you pursue Christ-likeness, and what you will taste is you will taste failure, and then you will taste a need, a compelling desire to cling to Christ even harder. And then you may taste a little taste of success, but then you cling to Christ even harder. You pursue holiness, and you fail, and you cling. You pursue holiness, and you might change a little bit, but you still cling anyway. That's laying hold of that which is already laid hold of you. There's a potential for some to say, well, he's demonstrating that he doesn't agree in once saved, always saved. I just don't like quippy sayings. That's not in the Bible. Do I believe it? Yeah, but I'd much rather believe what the Bible says. I believe that the saints will persevere, and I believe that as they persevere, they will be preserved. Ron Perone made up a word on accident. I love it, but I'm going to give it to him. It's perseverance of the saints. 
Isn't that rich? That the saints will be preserved as they persevere. As they grow downward, they will be preserved. Is it dependent on each other? No, they're just Siamese twins. They go together. You won't find a saint without perseverance. You won't find a saint without perseverance and without them being preserved. They're not conditional. They're just Siamese twins. And the formerly smelly come unfinished and beating their chests, laying hold of that which has already laid hold of them as if it's a subjunctive thing. It's not done yet. The third thing. The first was formerly smelly come as little children, growing downward. The second was formerly smelly come unfinished and beating their chests. And the third is the formerly smelly come with our Lord, who also considered himself small. Turn over a page. You may not even have to turn over the page. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Paul writes the Philippians, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, with the view of your tomb, with the smell of your stench in your nostrils, with the recognition of your wretchedness, your odiousness, your vileness, with the humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's easy to read. That's hard to do, isn't it? Regard others as more important than yourself. The only way you can get there is being small in your own eyes. The only way you can get there is with a view of your stench in your tomb. That's the only way to achieve treating others as more important than yourselves. Well, here's where Christ is the model. Keep going. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, Jesus is God, in case you know that. He's fully God. There was never a time when he was not. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. There was never a time when he was not. He's fully man, but yes, he's fully God. He existed in the form of God, although he did. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Although he's God, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but instead poured himself out, emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men. I believe that he's still going to be in the likeness of man. After he was crucified and resurrected, after he revealed himself to doubting Thomas, he said, look at my wrists, look at my side. When he ate fish, I think in eternity he's going to bear those scars and he's still going to look like a man. A glorified man, but he poured out his privileges and he took on the likeness of a man being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you say you can't be small and you need a model, there you go. It's both model and means right there. You can't do it apart from the work of Christ in your life. Let me give you the most beautiful picture of Christ in smallness and in humility. Even death on a cross is humbling himself. When he was on a cross in Luke chapter 23, you don't need to turn there. I'll just you may make a note of this. Read it. 
When I first started studying Greek, we were doing translations, and we translated when Christ was on the cross, we translated what he said from the original language. And I began to grow captivated and appreciative of tenses of Greek and realized that a good portion of preaching is just exposing those and letting the Word do its terrible work. Here's one of those. When Jesus was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, it was actually something that's called an imperfect tense. It means that it's not finished yet. It means that he kept saying it. It says he was saying over and over and over and over and over again, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing as they mocked him and as they spit on him, the only true innocent. That smallness right there. What happens when you come unfinished? beating your chest what happens when you come as a little child and what happens when you come with our Lord as a suffering servant I'll tell you what happens scandalous smallness happens smallness that will impact you and all you know and everyone that even knows you your marriages will be transformed You can think you have a great marriage, but the both of you get small and you see what happens to your marriage. It will transform friendships, work relationships, all completely turned upside down. Christy and I have been married 11 years, or we were married 11 years in July, and I thought we had a great marriage. I really think that we did. But now this side of smallness, This side of my stinking league with Lazarus, things have changed dramatically. More than any conference, more than any video series I ever watched, I appreciate Gary Smalley and these guys and the books and stuff, but the book that's changed our marriage more has been a chapter, John chapter 11, where we're growing small in our own eyes. The world does not teach and preach this message. You won't hear it in the world. What you'll hear in the world is, you deserve better. You'll hear women talking to each other. You don't let him treat you that way. You deserve better. You hear it all day long. You hear also, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. That's in first opinions, maybe. But it's not in this Bible. You also hear, man, they're out to get you. You got to fight back and take their head off before they get you. That's the message of the world. And when you think, I want to encourage you, when you think, I don't deserve that, I deserve better. Or wives, when you think, why doesn't he know how I'm feeling? Or husbands, when you're confronted with that, if you think, I can't read minds. Who does she think I am? When you're thinking like that, or when you're thinking in the office, why haven't I been promoted yet? Why am I so underappreciated? Why am I so unrecognized? Why did they promote him over me? Instead of all those things, think this. Think, oh, I 
stinketh. Oh, I'm with Lazarus. I'm small in my own eyes. If I want to think about what I really deserve, I deserve a lake of fire. That's what I deserve. So Christy thinking that I should know what she's thinking, that's pretty small compared to a lake of fire. It's close. <laughs> I'm kidding. She knows I'm kidding because our marriage is rich. It's rich when this has just undone us. When I think about the things that I, if I'm getting something I feel like I don't, don't, I don't deserve, and then I think about what I really deserve, I deserve a lake of fire, it changes everything. It changes everything. Instead of thinking, I don't deserve that, or I deserve better, we should think I stink. And if that person has a problem with me, they think I've done something wrong, or they think I'm messed up, they may be right. And if I want to be in league with Christ, I'll let them be right. That's radical. That's scandalous. That is disarming even to the most aggressive. It embodies a soft answer, turns away wrath. That will disarm someone that wants to eat you alive. Let them eat you. Let them eat you. It's otherworldly and it points to an ethic of the cross and an indwelling of a Holy Spirit and it embodies and displays the character of our captivating Lord. You want a bunch of Jesuses to invade Greenville? Be small in your own eyes and let him be huge out there. I'll ask those questions again. Are you not getting what you deserve? You sure aren't. Because we're sitting in a sanctuary at Cross Point Fellowship, the building. We're not swimming in a lake of fire. So yeah, you're right. You're not getting what you deserve. You deserve God's wrath for your sinfulness. Be informed as you consider that question. Are others out to get you? They were out to get our Lord. So count it a privilege to share His sufferings. Are you unrecognized and underappreciated? Good. Because it's not about you. It's not about your recognition and people appreciating you. It's about Christ's renown and His fame. And He will be embraced most beautifully when you are smallest. Let me pray. Lord, I, um, as I'm praying now at the end of this message and thinking about a prayer that I prayed two weeks ago at about this very moment, I'm kind of frightened to ask this, but I recognize the riches that are on the other side of it, so I'll ask it anyway. Lord, humiliate us. Humble us. Lord, grow us downward so that Christ may increase. Lord, show us what it means to be small in our own eyes and transform our marriages, transform our relationships, transform our workplaces, transform our community with a bunch of small, insignificant, downward-growing people. Lord, we thank you so much for the model and the means of Christ. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.